You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. This morning, we're going to be looking together at chapter 6 in the book of Acts. And reading together verses 8 through 15 to the end of the chapter. You'll find this on page 914 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Hear the word of God. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, having appointed seven men to serve as deacons, we discovered that the church continued to grow. And all seven of these deacons were taken from among the Hellenists, or the Greek-speaking Jews. The increased efficiency therefore ensured that all the Christian widows would be cared for. And these men were entrusted with the administration and the distribution of all the church's resources. It was a very important duty. But more importantly, they did reflect the sovereign mercy of Christ. The one who spares us, if we are Christian, from the punishment that our sins deserve. That's mercy. And this he does because he himself bore the penalty in his own flesh. God forgives us and accepts us and spares us from the sentence of death. That's why Peter says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. <laughs> what a marvelous thing. And to illustrate that attribute of God, he appoints deacons who themselves experienced mercy. So among the seven, Stephen was the most prominent and perhaps even the most memorable. And the reason for this is the amount of space devoted to his martyrdom. His service to the church on earth was short, but it was very influential. 
The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was followed by a satanic counterattack. The Jewish leaders had arrested and interrogated the apostles on two previous occasions. They tried to hinder the spread of the gospel, but they were unsuccessful, thankfully. And now that Christ was leading the church into worldwide mission, that opposition was intensifying. This would be the third great trial of the early Christians before the Jewish opposition. You remember in chapter 4 how the first trial ended with Peter and John being warned and threatened. The second trial ended with the apostles standing firm and being flogged for their faith. And this third trial will culminate with the unjust execution of Stephen, the martyr. So the more the gospel spreads and bears fruit, the more intense will be the opposition. And Luke highlights that Stephen was a sincere, devoted, influential Christian. He was full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He was a Hellenist Jew who'd been converted to faith in Christ. That in and of itself is an amazing thing. And with the other six, he had been ordained and installed as a deacon, and he was faithfully fulfilling his responsibilities of extending mercy to God's people. And he's described as being full of grace and power in verse 8, I believe, because he was filled with the Spirit in verse 3. His gifts and his graces were the result of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which every one of us has if we're a believer. And it's one of the most amazing features of the gospel of Christ. The spirit of promise, this Holy Spirit, takes up residence in the soul and he transforms us. That's incredible. Paul says to Titus, God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You can't see him but we can see the effects of his power. That's why we're here this morning. And full of grace, which I take as a reference to the Spirit's sanctifying influence. The Holy Spirit was applying the virtue of Christ's mediation to his soul. And full of power, the gift to perform signs and wonders, the Spirit enabling him to do mighty miracles, which served as proof of the truth of his message. This was true. Miracles. We're told in Hebrews 2, for example, God bore witness to the gospel by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God proved it to be true. And he was performing through Stephen both signs and wonders to confirm it. They were the divine stamp of approval to his witness. And it was a powerful ministry. Everybody could see its fruit. But there were some Jews from a particular synagogue who rose up in opposition to his ministry. Not surprising. They were from the synagogue of the freedmen, one of many synagogues in Jerusalem. And only 10 men were required to form the nucleus of a synagogue. You find 10 Jews, you can have a synagogue. And the term freedmen refers to these Jewish prisoners of war who had been released. 
So now freed, they return to Jerusalem, assemble together to form a synagogue. And some of them are from Cyrene, and others are from Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia. And it was from this synagogue that the earliest opposition found its greatest strength. They vigorously resisted and disputed Stephen's preaching of the Christ. And I have no doubt that he was proclaiming the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. After all, those are the bedrock truths of our faith, the foundational doctrines. Don't let the word doctrine scare you. It simply refers to truth. The apostle describes these truths or doctrines as of first importance, of the highest rank. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. And Christ rose again from the dead. On these great truths hangs our whole salvation. Everything we hope for in the future. It's called a great salvation in part because of how it came to be. The eternal Son of God assumed human flesh to die on a Roman cross. Who would have thought of that? And when he did that, he satisfied all the demands of divine justice. And when he did that in his life, he fulfilled all the requirements of God's law, all of them. There is therefore now, says Paul, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Christian is free from the guilt and the power of sin, and he can live a new life. And by the way, that's why the church and her pulpit must always hold forth these truths. These truths of the highest rank. Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Any church that deviates from that, don't enter. Of all things that Paul could preach, this was the theme of his ministry. And he was deliberate in his focus upon the cross and by implication the resurrection. So Stephen is preaching Christ, giving proof of its tr truth by miracles, signs, and wonders. And so powerful and compelling was his ministry, they couldn't withstand it. And he spoke of two things in his speech that are especially sacred to the Jews, the temple and the Mosaic law. Because at the temple alone, sacrifices could be offered and God could be worshipped. And in the law, which could never be changed as they believed, divine revelation was to be found. That's what God spoke. And yet, as Stephen understood, these two things, the temple and the law, found fulfillment in the work of Christ. So neither the sacrifices nor the priesthood were needed any longer. And the Mosaic law as a national covenant with Israel was no longer in force. So Stephen taught these truths, and the freedmen hated him for it. So the Jews secretly instigated men who accused him of blasphemy, and they mischaracterized his teaching as revolutionary and scandalous, when in fact he was simply expounding scripture, but their eyes were blind and their ears were stopped, 
and false witnesses twisted his words to make it seem as if he was a blasphemer. You see, the Jews should have surrendered their pride right then and there. They should have submitted to Christ. But their hearts were hard. And their necks were stiff. And they refused to do so as so many in our day refuse to do so. The truth didn't matter to them really because it wasn't about truth. It was about the suppression of truth because the Jewish leaders in fact hated Christ and so naturally they hated the follower of Christ. Jesus himself predicted it. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's an expression of the age-old conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. There was enmity between the devil's offspring and the children of God. And the Jewish freedmen framed Stephen for blasphemy that he didn't commit. Their Jewish propaganda influenced the crowd to oppose him. And because of the false reports, the people were gnashing their teeth at him. Must have been an awful sight. It was a mob mentality. It took over and the multitude sided with the Sanhedrin. So now what we have, people, elders, scribes, and leadership all opposed to Stephen. They haul him into court where false charges are leveled against him. And as with Jesus, so with Stephen, his words were twisted and misinterpreted. Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He didn't say may be persecuted. He says will be. If a man or a woman's life is consistent with the teaching of Christ, he or she will be opposed. He didn't say a moral life. He didn't say a moralist. He said a godly life in Christ Jesus. One one life that is governed by the gospel and the kind and the degree of opposition may differ. In our context, our lives don't seem to be in danger yet. But there will be opposition. If, if my beliefs and my practices never are in contrast with the world, then something is wrong. But if you suffer for Christ, be not ashamed because you glorify God on that occasion. Stephen did. He faced his opponents and it says his face was like the face of an angel. Now, of course, angels don't have bodies and they don't have faces, but they can assume bodily form. And when they do, they appear with a bright and glorious countenance. Remember at the tomb, the angel? This is what it says. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Or how about the angel that appeared to Manoah's wife? She said the angel's appearance was very awesome. And that's because I think every angel in heaven somehow reflects God, the God before whom they stand. Stephen's radiant, angelic face was the result of his fellowship with God. If you look at the end of chapter 7, this is what it says. 
Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. His face. I think the description of his face reminds me of a similar situation in the life of Moses that Elder Gillen read earlier. We're told that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. And so both Stephen and Moses beheld the glory of the living God, which is an incredible privilege, the one we will enjoy in perfection in heaven, and their faces. Their faces were radiant with the reflection of God's glory. So when all earthly help failed him, Stephen looked steadfastly into heaven and he reflected the glory of God. I don't think it was as if he could look to the sky and see physically into heaven. It's not with the natural eye that Stephen saw Christ at God's throne. It was with the eye of faith that he was able to peer somehow into the invisible world. And in some supernatural or inexplicable way, the Spirit enabled him to see heaven. And it was a foretaste of what theologians call the beatific vision. When you see God and you're like him, not divine, but holy. Stephen looked away from the world and he directed his gaze toward the Lord and I think it's a very good lesson for us. What's the song say? Turn your eyes toward Jesus. The things of this world will grow strangely dim. The more we look away from this life to the life which is to come, the better off we are. If we did this more, I think, like Stephen, we probably would grow far more wise. And this will be the inevitable and eternal condition of all the saints. Do you know what Jesus said about this? In Matthew 13, it's a little verse and it's fascinating. Jesus says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The righteous, believers. <laughs> that describes you. Christ points to the sun as the best analogy on earth of the Christian's future glory. Shining like the sun. In the immediate vision of Christ will shine forever with angelic brightness, like Stephen's face. So, I think as we consider this passage, one of the things we have to think about is this, that we should learn to recognize and resist the diabolical strategy of the devil. We go from the heights to the depths. Learn to recognize and resist the diabolical schemes of the devil. He has three basic weapons. I used to say two. He has three. Deception, seduction, persecution. Those are his three weapons. Different forms, different expressions, but those three. Deception, seduction, persecution. Depending on his target, he will adapt his method to the situation. And ultimately, his aim is to dishonor and disgrace the name of Christ. 
He will use any or all three of those methods to destroy human souls. He is a skillful liar. He's an expert in falsehood. He is masterful at deceiving because he cheated the Jews into thinking that Stephen was a blasphemer. They had no idea of the great watershed events that had taken place. With Christ's death and resurrection, the messianic age had dawned. And God had established a new covenant of which Jeremiah had spoke long ago. But the freedmen, blinded by pride, hardened by hate, seared by sin, easily were deceived. Because the devil deceives. He will lead you and I, if he can, to esteem ourselves more than we should and to look down upon our neighbor. He will convince her that her gossip is an expression of care and concern for others. He will persuade him that his vanity is just good stewardship of his body. That's deception. He'll make her believe that her daily judgmental attitude is really spiritual discernment. Or he'll induce him to think that his selfishness is an expression of masculinity and headship. He'll get her to think that it's okay to be angry over petty things and never seek to be reconciled because it's no big deal. That's deception. He tries to deceive in a thousand different ways and he'll suit them to the individual. And if deception doesn't work, he will attempt to seduce his targets. He'll use the snares of the world as bait to the sinful desires of human beings. That is to say, he'll play to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, in American culture, as you and I both know, this has been one of his most effective weapons, seduction. Even within the church, he has utilized this in a powerful way. As a matter of fact, let me give you an example. We talked about this in inquirers class. He has seduced many in our culture to view worship from a purely subjective outlook. They've been led to believe that the service of worship is meant to make them feel good. When in fact, the apostle says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. What worship is, is an offering to God. It's Godward. It ascribes worth to him. It's not about stirring up our emotions or propping up our psyche. It's about glorifying God. And you know something? Feeling good might be the result. But that's only an after effect. It's not the primary thing. And yet the devil seduces many to think that it's all about them. And he'll seduce in many other ways as we've seen many moral failures, even from the pulpit. And if the devil can't deceive... And if he can't seduce, then he'll resort to persecution. It's a far more messy method and it requires more energy 
and resources. And if he can avoid this, he'll, he'll try, because as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He knows what happens when he kills the Christian. He prefers to lead people down the broad and easy road to destruction. It's less messy. But such is his hatred of Christ and his malice toward the saints that he will resort to force if he has to, and Christians he will persecute. Because if he cannot ruin the soul, at least he can destroy the body. Right? Thank God for the resurrection, because in the end, he gets neither. <laughs> Jesus wins. So let's recognize his strategies and let's discern in the world's hostility the unfolding of God's sovereign plan. He did say, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And in Stephen, we see proof of this divinely implanted enmity with Satan. That's what happens when by grace a sinner is drawn to Christ. Enmity is put in his heart toward what is evil. According to God's mercy, he's born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ. And as Elder Gilliland read, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The great Sanhedrin couldn't resist Stephen's wisdom because by the Spirit's power, there had been a complete reversal in his disposition, changed him. By nature, we're children of wrath and fast friends with Satan, but the new birth overturns this friendship with the devil and enmity is introduced, and the believer now loves what God loves and hates what God hates. But in Stephen's Jewish opponents, we find the nefarious offspring of the devil. Did you know that... According to the Apostle John, there are three things that distinguish the devil's offspring. An ungodly life, an unloving spirit, and a lack of faith in Christ. Those three things distinguish the devil's offspring. He says, by this is, it is evident who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, ungodly life. Nor is the one who does not love his brother, an unloving spirit. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is the spirit of Antichrist. So these freedmen rejected Christ, hated Stephen, plotted murder. They claimed to be religious, but they proved they were of the devil. So in light of Jesus' teaching, let's be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise in defending the gospel and innocent in adorning our life with virtue. And finally, as I close, let me just say this, that we see here the critical importance of the Lord's presence in the Christian life. Now, I know that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But God is with believers in a very special manner. He is present everywhere, preserving and governing his creatures. But with his children, he is present, sanctifying, comforting, and blessing. He's with us in wisdom to direct us, and he's with us in power to strengthen us, and he's with us in his mercy, grace, and love to comfort us, especially in our afflictions. And in the midst of the greatest temptations, he sustains us by secret supplies of grace. 
That's why it says that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That's the privilege of every Christian. In good times and bad, he's with us. He's not only the God of the mountains, but he's the God of the valleys as well. And he's able to sweeten all of our experience because Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And if God be with us, and if God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the example of Stephen, your servant. His ministry was short but influential. A man full of grace and the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this word and we pray that you'll give us discernment as we too face temptation and opposition. And we pray that you will be with us, strengthening and comforting us for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.